It has stood the test of time. God's book, the Bible, still relevant in today's complex world. It is written, sharing messages of hope around the world. We began this series, Philosophy's Achilles Heel, asking the question of the ages, does God exist? Now in our quest to answer that all important question, we discovered two essential principles. The first is this, we must adopt the attitude of the inquirer rather than the attitude of the skeptic or the believer. You see, skeptics and believers both allow their assumptions to skew the data and their interpretation of that data. And thus, this leads skeptics to disbelieve in the face of reasonable evidence. And on the opposite side of the coin, assumptions lead believers to believe even though big questions remain. However, an honest inquirer will accept reasonable evidence even if some questions remain. And consequently, inquirers base their decisions on the weight of the evidence. Now, the second essential principle we discovered and talked about is that the most objective definition of certainty is based on statistical probability. Now, practically speaking, this means that the lower the probability, the greater the certainty is if that thing actually comes true. Unfortunately, Knowledge alone that is derived through reason, sensory perception, intuition, feelings, experience, history, and the experts is just not sufficient enough to ground the question of God's existence. It is this second principle of probability in combination with that knowledge that becomes the key. Now, when we applied these two principles to the question of God's existence, we concluded that the weight of evidence decidedly points to the reality of his existence. Thus, in spite of questions that may still remain, we conclude that the difficulties of belief are great, but the absurdities of unbelief are even greater. In addition to asking the grand question of God's existence, we also noted that the reality of God's existence doesn't solve all of the contradictory things that are said about him. Now, those contradictory things are said by philosophers, theologians, and books and voices of the world's great religions and worldviews. It is important then for us to apply the principle of probability theory to the various claims advanced by philosophers, theologians, and the books and voices of the world's great religions and worldviews so that we can settle the question of authority and inspiration. What we found through the use of probability theory is that the only book that can be trusted is the Old and New Testament scriptures of the Bible. They can be trusted because they invite the inquirer to test these writings through what is called predictive prophecy. 
In today's program and in the weeks to come, we will analyze the Bible and its predictive prophecy. We will apply the principles of probability to study the Bible, most particularly the book of Daniel. In fact, Daniel is so filled with predictive prophecy, we will study each one of the chapters. Now, as we do this, we will draw attention to the relevant themes within this small but powerful book by connecting them with the certainty that we have discovered through probability. Now, the book of Daniel itself begins with two very improbable events of probability that can be tested. The first is the empire of Babylon rising to power. The second is an age-old prophecy of 70 years that is connected with the Babylonian rise to supremacy and its subsequent demise. First, let's look at Babylon's rise to power. Another writer of the Old Testament by the name of Jeremiah wrote some amazing things concerning Babylon. He was a contemporary of Daniel and served in Jerusalem. Now, in approximately the year 605 B.C., the prophet Jeremiah wrote in chapter 25, verses 1 through 11 of the book that bears his name, that successfully predicted that Babylon would come against Jerusalem and against all the nations around Jerusalem and destroy them. Here's what the book of Jeremiah records in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 through 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And in an amazing turn of historical events, the Bible records direct fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. Daniel records Babylon's conquest of Jerusalem in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This took place in 605 B.C., and this is what the Bible says in Daniel 1, 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his gods. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Jeremiah predicted that Babylon would not only conquer Jerusalem, but that it would also conquer the surrounding nations. In order for this to take place, 
Babylon would have to displace two extremely powerful nations who were military superpowers for centuries. Those two superpowers that I'm referring to? Assyria and Egypt. During the early days of Jeremiah's ministry, the two great powers of Assyria and Egypt were struggling for supremacy with Babylon emerging as a strong contender. Now, the empire of Assyria had reached its peak, but was now on the decline under the leadership of Ashurbanipal around 627 BC. However, the fate of Assyria wasn't sealed until the fall of Nineveh in 612 BC to the Babylonians who were under the leadership of Nabopolassar. Egypt, meanwhile, under the leadership of Pharaoh Necho II, wouldn't let Babylon's rise go unchallenged. Although Babylon experienced an almost meteoric rise in power, Egypt would stand in her way. Egypt had thrown off the Assyrian yoke and they were endeavoring to regain their former glory and dominance in the Near East. Egypt first experienced victory over King Josiah of Judah around 609 BC. Then Egypt came into possession of Judea and they also occupied Syria. They also occupied parts of northern Mesopotamia. Unlike Assyria, however, which was definitely on the decline, Egypt was far from defeated. In fact, one might conclude that they were strengthening. It is, in fact, the decline of Assyria that provided Pharaoh Necho and Egypt with the opportunity to assert their independence from Assyria and to establish the 26th dynasty. The result of this amazing twist of events was a revived sense of national pride and continued political power that had continued for over a century. And now the political vacuum left after the fall of Nineveh gave Egypt the opportunity to reestablish that dominance as an empire in Western Asia. And so on his way through Palestine toward Haran, Pharaoh Necho defeated the troops of Judah and killed King Josiah in the Battle of Megiddo. You can read about this event because it's recorded in 2 Kings 23, 29 to 30, and also in 2 Chronicles 35, 20 to 27. But after defeating Judah, Pharaoh Necho then went north to go against the Babylonians. The battle would take place in Syria, and Pharaoh Necho sought out to strengthen the empire with his headquarters at Carchemish on the Euphrates River. However, as we read in Jeremiah 25, 8 through 11, the prophet Jeremiah pointed out that it would be Babylon who would conquer, and this challenge by the Egyptians was met by Nebuchadnezzar, general and eventual king of Babylon. There at Carchemish, the Babylonians decisively defeated the Egyptians at what is called the Battle of Carchemish. The battle took place in 605 BC. As crown prince of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was about to capitalize on his victory by going down into Egypt to destroy it. However, he received word that his father, Nabopolassar, had died. 
And so as a result, Nebuchadnezzar swiftly took the desert route back to Babylon. It was the far more difficult route to take. And there he secured the throne and he was named king of Babylon. The amazing thing, friends, is this. The defeat of Assyria and later of Egypt successfully fulfills Jeremiah's prophecy that Babylon would not just conquer Jerusalem, but that it would also conquer the two superpowers on its rise to supremacy. God asks that his word be tested, and this prophecy was fulfilled in detail. This prophecy then forms the background for the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem in 605 BC, where Daniel and his three friends were taken captive and brought back to Babylon. Along with the rise of Babylonian supremacy, Jeremiah also predicted something that is even more improbable than just this Babylonian supremacy during his and Daniel's time. On the account of the sins of Jerusalem, God, speaking through Jeremiah, foretold that his people would be captives in Babylon for 70 years. Earlier, we quoted Jeremiah 25, 8 through 12 with such a prediction. However, this prophecy is also recorded in Jeremiah 29, 10. It is very interesting to note. Several years after Jeremiah had spoken these words, there were false prophets in Babylon declaring that the Jewish captives would speedily return back to their homes in Judah. In response to this, Jeremiah pronounces these words in Jeremiah 29, 5 through 9. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that they may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. He concludes in Jeremiah 29.10 with these words. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So let's look at all the events that surround this time period. What we find is that they reveal the highly improbable nature of the things that are all connected with this 70-year prophecy. The first is that the prediction that Babylon would rise to power against such powerful foes like Egypt and Assyria. Second, Jerusalem would be defeated, leading to the deportation of many Jews, including Daniel and his friends. Third, 
Contrary to the opinion of many, Jeremiah counseled the Jews in Babylon to build houses and to marry because they would remain there in captivity for 70 years. And fourth, the release of the Jews from their captivity was also connected with the destruction of Babylon. You see, in addition, notice what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 25, verses 12 and 13. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. Not only does the Lord through Jeremiah predict the Babylonian rise to power, but here God also predicts the time that Babylon will fall. That coincides with the time that God will bring his people back home. Now think about this. It's one thing to predict the rise of Babylon amidst unlikely circumstances. Yet the probability of guessing its demise 70 years later is another thing altogether, especially since many considered the city of Babylon to be impregnable. Now much more could be said about Babylon's fall but we will save that for a future time. The first chapter of Daniel is but the start of a remarkable book that is written for the mind that is crying out for certainty. It is written with the honest inquirer in mind who is seeking something that they can hold on to in a world that seems to have lost its very foundations. The principles of this book, which outline true success in life, have been rejected by many nations and civilizations, including Babylon. However, we are seeing over and over again that we can trust the, the principles of this book because they have for a foundation the highly improbable events foretold by God himself that come true and demonstrate its certainty. And this was the foundation that Daniel had as he was taken captive into Babylon. Just imagine for a moment being taken from your home, forced to live in a foreign place, having your name changed, being sent to a foreign school, having your ability to reproduce and carrying on your name taken away from you, and then an attempt to change the very simplicity of what you eat. There is no need to imagine it because that is exactly what happened to Daniel and his three friends. Now they are named in Daniel 1 verse 6 and their names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Each of their names chosen by their parents because of their faithfulness to God as followers of God. However, as a part of the brainwashing procedure of Babylon, their names were changed to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those names respectively acknowledged the foreign gods of Babylon. Daniel and his friends, however, they were at peace with all these changes. 
all these changes except for one. Daniel and his three friends were not at peace with a change in diet. In fact, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 tells us why they weren't at peace. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. I want you to notice a particular word in the text, defile. They did not want to defile themselves. In the original language, this word literally means to pollute, to desecrate, or to stain. You see, Daniel and his three friends, they had spent their lives as inquirers of God. They'd experienced God, and now they would once again put him to the test. Daniel and his three friends would have had several problems with the king's food. Number one, the food was likely comprised of unclean animals, which were strictly forbidden by God to eat. Secondly, the animals that were killed were not humanely killed as prescribed by God. And thirdly, the serving of alcohol and feasting of the king's table would have not been in line with the principle of temperance that these young gentlemen had been brought up with. So they asked for a test. They asked to be prescribed a meal plan of only vegetables, or pulse as the Bible calls it, and water. And by the way, this was no accident. As Daniel was asking to be returned to God's original Garden of Eden diet. Now the guard didn't know if that was such a great idea, but Daniel asked for 10 days and then a test could be administered. It's interesting to note that the New England Journal of Medicine calls this the first ever clinical trial. Daniel and his three friends at the end of the 10-day test are found to be healthier on their vegetable diet and they continued on in that plan during their time in Babylon. Then it's interesting, final exams for university came, and the Bible states something fascinating in Daniel 1, 19 and 20. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Now let me ask you a question. How probable is it that four young Hebrew slaves would rise to the top of their class in Babylon, which was at the time the world's most renowned university? Is true success a matter of chance? Or are there enduring principles that one must understand and put into practice? Where do the principles of success come from and what are they based on? Is it essential for one to have all the advantages that wealth and genius can offer in order to be truly successful? No, there simply must be a willingness, a willingness to be obedient to God's plan. God's way versus society's way. God's way versus the king's way. Dear friend, an honest inquirer must begin to conclude 
God does exist and his ways are best. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us the evidence so we might believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, physiotherapist Andrew Conroy is here to show us a few ways to keep our bodies limber. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Bev. Hi. Often the aches and pains that we experience are because our muscles are tight. But I've read that stretching is a wonderful way to keep our muscles and our joints nice and flexible. That's correct. Can you comment a little bit about that? Sure. You know, when we're walking, our, mus our legs are the main generators of the force mm -hmm. of the exercise. So after a good walk, when we feel refreshed and we've worked a little, we need to stretch those out to prevent any joint soreness. Okay. Can you show us a few exercises? I certainly can. We can use something as simple as a chair to do the exercises okay. and stretching. And I'm going to show you, first of all, the quadriceps stretch. So Bev, I just want you to face forward, all put right. your right hand on the chair mm -hmm. here. And what we're going to do, Bev, is going to lift your left foot, right. place it behind, and grab the ankle with the hand. Before we do anything else, Bev, we're going to just draw the core in gently, and we should start to feel a nice stretch through here. I'm feeling You're now going to begin to pull that knee towards the back wall. And as you do so, I don't want to see any movement up uh -huh, here. Okay. Two common errors with this are to arch the back and over-compress the uh, spine at the back, or to allow the knee to drift out. We're not going to allow that to happen. Instead, we're going to just allow a 30-second nice stretch, mm -hmm. and that gives a, a time for the tissues to elongate. Once the 30 seconds is up, we can gently lower the foot back down. All right, that was a good stretch. You felt that? I did. Good, good. <laughs> the next stretch we're going to do, Bev, I'm going to get you into this position, and we're going to stretch the left calf. I'll show you how to do that. All right. These are familiar to us, but there are common mistakes we can make. We want to make sure that the foot is nicely pointed forwards. The other important thing here that is that the knee remains fully locked back and that the heel does not begin to ride off, off the floor. We need that heel fully down. Once that's there, you should have a nice gentle stretch through there. And again, our 20 to 30 second rule is going to apply with a slow, gentle release at the end. Okay. The final stretch, yes. Bev, is really for the muscles at the back of the thigh, and these are called okay. the hamstring muscles. So I'm going to ask you to just step sideways. Okay. Place your left heel up on the chair here. You're going to just gently lean forwards at the waist. Mm -hmm. That's fine. And you're going to keep the foot gently pulled up Yes, that does until make it you feel that stretch coming on. Okay. Again, our gentle 30-second yes. rule applies. Don't be too over-aggressive with this. That should be that first gentle uh, stretch that you feel. Don't bounce. That's a common mistake I see. Don't bounce. Give the tissues time to elongate. And you're going to feel fine after exercise when you run through these gentle stretches. Fantastic. I can feel the stretch already. Excellent. Andrew, thank you so much for showing us those exercises. And you at home, I hope you stay limber. Andrew says it's important. I'll see you next time. Friend, I would like to offer you a DVD of today's program, Philosophy's Achilles Heel, Answers from Babylon. Here's the information you need for today's offer. 
To request today's offer, just log on to www.itiswrittencanada.ca. If you prefer, you may call toll-free at 1-888-CALL-IIW. Or if you wish, you may write to us at It Is Written, Box 2010, Oshawa, Ontario, L1H 7V4. Friend, thank you so much for watching. Join us again next week for the continuation of this series. Until then, remember, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.